there is a temptation to think of leadership purely in terms of charisma and uh, celebrity, right? And so then that leads leaders then to maybe steamroll over their subordinates instead of actually listening to them. Charismatic leaders get the best of us. They speak to our hearts, our pain, and inspire hope. We feel lifted up while getting a break from the weight of the burdens we're carrying. But unchecked, this type of leadership cares more about a self-serving agenda that is not interested in collaboration and shared power. We see proof of this in the cult followings and actual cults created by charismatic leaders. A tragic but effective example is Gwen Shablin, founder of the diet book, Ugh, I even hate saying this, The Way Down, and the Cultish Remnant Fellowship Church. She used her charisma to tap into rampant body shame many felt by connecting weight loss with worthiness and holiness in God's eyes, weaponizing faith and well-being. She exploited her community and controlled all in her programs by requiring them to join her church that promoted misogyny, abusive corporal punishment of kids, and restricted connection to those, quote, outside the church, just to name a few. And she did this all while accumulating massive amounts of wealth from these individuals. That's why we need leaders who respect the vulnerability so many are navigating right now, who do the work to create spaces that don't just serve one, but do their best to truly support all. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Right now, So many of us are connected through the shared emotional reactions to tragic events we've witnessed and continue to experience. Now, it's important to note there is a powerlessness that comes from these shared traumatic experiences. The communities we're in are more likely to heal when they gather and create a positive shared meaning around what they've all experienced. Now, there's often a natural default to spontaneously create spaces to honor loss, like makeshift memorials, or more organized ceremonies. But unattended or addressed only on a surface level, these wounds can fester and become toxic individually and collectively. Like all traumas, vicarious and collective trauma cause a breach in connection or a betrayal in trust in self and or others. And with disconnection comes the risk of a break in healthy community. Sometimes this happens quickly, but often it's a slow bleed. And I've been thinking a lot about the power of connection and community during such a vulnerable and divided time right now. Like many of you, I've watched the multitude of documentaries exposing leaders who wove together dogma, communicated by charismatic leaders with demands for devout dedication through 100% obedience and a heavy push to their followers to show their devotion by purchasing their goods and services. There is a clear pattern that we're seeing play out again and again. And for me, the doozy of them all was Gwen Shamlin of The Way Down. It was both eye-opening and a chilling example of a leader who used her charisma and her so-called, quote, gifts to cultivate belonging by weaponizing faith, health, family, and the desire to be financially sound. Through a cultish church and extremely dangerous weight loss program that body shamed and fueled disordered eating and full-blown eating disorders, Shamblin exerted control by claiming to be the voice of God. People were staying because they were afraid of retaliation. She promoted corporal punishment to parents that led to abuse and even death. And this show left me slack-jawed and deeply disturbed by its appeal (laughs) even in the present, and unchecked practices for so long. And I'm seeing how important it is to stay curious about the systems you're in that influence your capacity to connect in a healthy way and build trust that is foundational to healing and growing together. Systems and communities that promote individualism and rigid beliefs of good or bad or right and wrong cultivate connection around fear, rather than building a sense of true belonging for everyone. 
we continue to witness the drive of fanatical devotion to a product, a person, or a place that is often fueled by charismatic leaders selling healing and community through absolution by association or purchasing a product. And this is where stuff and consumption of products is sold as a form of connection versus the nuanced and challenging work of being in community with diverse people. These types of communities also offer the myth of certainty, which is a fleeting comfort. And many of the systems we're in have taught us to move away from quality connections to growth at the expense of relationships. Leading well is not just about results or metrics, but heart and values and checks and balances with accountability. It's about doing the work that creates trust and connection versus creating division and distrust which is why I called upon a high school friend of mine who is a historian and whose body of work focuses on the intersection of modern evangelicalism, consumerism, and capitalism, all systems that I've been curious about as we navigate polarities in community and collective traumas and healing. Dr. Tim Glegg is a historian and author of Guaranteed Pure, the Moody Bible Institute, Business and the Making of Modern Evangelicalism. He's also a librarian at the Grand Rapids Public Library. He earned his PhD in U.S. history at the University of Notre Dame. His family moved to Grand Rapids where Tim spent a decade writing and serving as lead parent for his two amazing kids. And most recently, Tim moved to the very different world of public libraries and currently works as a librarian at the Grand Rapids Public Library while continuing to write. Now, I want you to pay attention to the three qualities Tim identified as the pillars of modern evangelicalism and the connection they have to supremacy culture. Listen to how Tim explains the mindset behind building corporate evangelicals and the impact it has on how we consume. And notice how his studies showed how both the leaders of megachurches and large businesses view those they served and led, playing upon distrust and collective nostalgia. Now, please welcome Dr. Tim Glegg to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Tim, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So I want to jump in. We've got a bunch of like nerdy, heavy, deep stuff to talk about, but I I just feel like I need to be transparent for those of you listening. Tim and I go way back. Tim and I graduated high school the same year. We're like Gen Xers on steroids. We went senior spring break together, but it was not your typical spring break. It was like church youth group spring break. <laughs> and it was still fun. Don't get me wrong, but it was just probably not your when you say spring break senior year, it can evoke some different things. So I just feel so honored to be able to have friends like you, Tim, to say, hey, it's been a while, but do you want to come on the show and talk about these things? And you said yes. So Tim, thank you. I'm really glad you're here. Yes, it, this I'm really excited about the conversation and everything you said was true. So <laughs> <laughs> I still have memories of being like road tripping from Minneapolis to to Colorado yep. and watching the three amigos in this souped up van. <laughs> All right. So I want to bring it down to a little bit more serious. So no, we're actually recording this conversation on the one year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection on the United States Capitol. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'd be remiss not to ask you as a historian and also a person of faith, what came up for you as you watched the events of the day unfold? So as a historian, there was a real, for me, a real palpable sense that I was witnessing something that was unprecedented in U.S. history and not in a good way. And so a real just heaviness, a fear lots lots of fear and a sense that we had we had crossed into territory that yeah we just we just had not been before so like i i i hadn't felt that dark since 911 which was a similar thing but again just just a, a really unprecedented kind of sense of what was going on i think as as a person of faith that that side of me felt a real despair and uh, a real darkness, and I think this real desire, this instinct to, to try to separate myself from those people that were doing that. 
So, and I think we all maybe have that instinct. And so myself as, as a person who identifies as a Christian, I would say, you know, that's not what Jesus stood for. And that those people aren't real Christians. And you know, that, that kind of rhetoric, which I, I understand and I understand in myself, but I don't think that it's right either because mm. then I'm not taking responsibility for what happened and what is going on. And so I think for me, there was also a kind of reckoning with my own faith tradition and a sense that, hey, this is, I mean, proof positive that something has gone terribly wrong and I need to ask hard questions and I need to take uh, a, a certain sort of responsibility for that, that I have a responsibility to speak to those people, to speak into that, and to try to figure out what is going on and how we can prevent it from happening again. Mm. Yeah, thank you for naming that. I really resonate with some of those internal polarities and yeah. and those parts that want to just to blame and mm-hmm. separate. But I appreciate the the call to take ownership too, as we share the same faith faith. And yeah, I think the last couple of years have led me to just continue to have my own reckoning with that too. Mm-hmm. And I think it's essential, absolutely essential. I'm curious though, from your unique perspective, if you can speak to what collective experiences do you think led up to this day? Yeah. And I, I, I do think it's complicated, right? That there are, <laughs> <laughs> there's no one thing. And if you talk to any historian, they're going to start every single question with, it's complicated. So caveat on that. But I think the people that were there at the Capitol, it, it was a diverse group of people, right? You know, in a certain sense of the word, at least. And so you had people who are trying to foment all-out civil war, who probably knew full well that Trump had lost the election and was just trying to stir people up and and get something started. And you know other groups as well. But I think the the people that I study the most, which has been American evangelicals, and that, you know, some horrible miscarriage of justice had occurred in November, and that was the reason why they were there. And so like that question of why those people are there is something I've been thinking about a fair amount, I think, actually, since the election of Trump and when it came to light that, you know, 81% of American evangelicals voted for Trump, you know, the question was, why Why did that happen? And I think those two things are related. I mean, so I think for me, I think, again, it's it's a complicated thing. There's probably no one answer. But I, I think within evangelicalism, there is uh, like a three-part... I don't know, three, like three components of evangelicalism that kind of fed into that. And, and one is this kind of demand for purity that, you know, they can only associate with people that they feel are pure. I think the second thing is this assumption of certainty, this conviction that they have the truth and, you know, the objective truth. And those two things kind of play off of each other, right? Because if you know the truth, then you know that you're pure and you know who the bad guys are. And then the final thing is this quest for control, this desire wow. you know, to really control everything, including the narrative and including the country and how other people behave. So I think feeding into that is this very binary thinking, right? That, you know, there are only two types of people in the world. There are the good guys and there are the bad guys. There's light and there's darkness. There's truth and there's error. And that feeds into what happened at the Capitol because the devil won, you know, would be their narrative. And so they're fighting the devil by going into Congress and and messing things up. So I think it's that combination of things and just kind of run amok. So are these three components that make up what, what you've deemed of modern evangelicalism. And I can't help but think that that's exactly what supremacy culture is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's exactly what supremacy yeah. culture is. And I think that's important to name. And again, for those of us that have a similar faith tradition, mm-hmm. that's a tough pill to swallow, but an absolute one we need to look at. So I want to segue more into your work then. Thank you sure. for sharing that reflection. So you're, you're an author, historian, librarian, you're an expert. And this is what I was most excited to talk to you about because these things fascinate me and how they all come together, the intersection 
of evangelicalism, business, and consumerism, and and that you really bring into focus how business and faith communities alike use similar tactics to achieve their goals and spread their message, which, Mm -hmm. yes, is so true. So the intro to your book, which is called Guaranteed Pure, uh, writes, conservative evangelicalism and modern business grew symbiotically, transforming the ways that Americans worshipped, worked, and consumed. So I'd love for you to walk all of us through a basic timeline of how that blend of evangelicalism and modern business have transformed the way we think about leadership. Yeah, and and I think that's such a great question. So I think the the leadership portion of my story, and I end up talking about a whole bunch of other stuff, but the thing that relates to leadership specifically, I think, is a story that is about starts with people after the Civil War who are struggling with the problem of trust in an mm. increasingly impersonal society, right? So you had the war. After that, you have this kind of dramatic rise in people moving away from these smaller communities into urban areas, so they don't know as many people. But then also, it's also a time in American history that you suddenly see the emergence of these massive corporations, right? Because of changes in law and all this sort of thing. So you have these huge businesses that are creating massive amounts of product. They are super efficient. They can, you know, do all this great stuff, but they have a problem, right? Which is Mm. that for most of American history, when people did business, they did business with people that they knew, right? And so these businesses, these huge corporations that have, you know, thousands and thousands of people working for them, there's actually not even one owner, right? Because everybody owns stock. And so there isn't actually one person who is held accountable for what that corporation does. And their problem is, how do we get people to trust us, right? Mm -hmm. And so the solution that they come up with starts first and foremost with, with using trademarks. And the trademark is used to make the corporation into a person. It gives the corporation a reputation. A lot of times they would use like a real figure or sometimes a fictional character, but someone who looked like a person. And then they did massive amounts of advertising to get people familiar with the trademark, get them familiar with the brand, and then slowly but surely kind of come to trust it, right? So there's there's trademark, There's advertising. And then part of that advertising also is to sow distrust in some of the more traditional ways of doing things, right? And so, you know, oh, you can't trust, you know, you can't trust that mom and pop shop. You can't trust, you know, whatever you get. You need to come to us and and we're the people that you can depend on. So, So there's that business story that's going on from after the Civil War into 1910. And around 1910, all of these things come together and, and create kind of modern capitalism as we experience it today. There have been some shifts here and there, but really the basic kind of framework and foundation for the world that we live in today came about during that time. Okay, so you have that business side. Around the same time, you have this group of people that I call corporate evangelicals who actually have a similar problem. And so they are, for various reasons, trying to create new religious organizations. So new religious organizations. Yes. So Meaning, like, yeah, tell me more about that. Okay. So traditionally, people were part of a church that was uh, associated with a denomination Right. And if you go back, actually, denominations had almost an ethnic feel to them. There's ethnic associations with all of these different uh, with all these different denominations, but they're very traditional. They're very kind of communal. You know everybody in your church, right? And you trust it because that's what you are. You were born Presbyterian, and so you trust Presbyterians, right? And you just basically mm-hmm. stick with what you were from when you were born. And especially if you're in a kind of 
ethnic minority, so say like Dutch, I'm, I live here in Grand Rapids, and so so the Christian Reformed Church is, is big there. It's a, this Dutch denomination, and, you know, everybody trusts everybody, and they trust the denomination because it's Dutch, right? And that's who we are. So around 1870, you have these, these evangelicals that are trying to create new religious organizations that will service all these different people from all these different denominations. And so their their goal is to kind of break down those denominational identities. But they have the same problem of trust that these large corporations have, where you have all these consumers and they're like, why should I trust you? So the people in my book are the people at the Moody Bible Institute, and they are trying to train people to be missionaries and evangelists and all these different things. So why should I trust you for my religious education? Well, it turns out that those same evangelicals were using a lot of the same techniques that large corporations were using, right? Mm. They created a trademark. And so at the Moody Bible Institute, they used Dwight L. Moody as this trademark. They did, they had massive advertising, which was through their magazine and the magazine itself and the content of that became a kind of form of advertisement, as well as in different religious or magazines and periodicals, things like that. Then they started a radio station. And so it's through mass media, through a lot of the same things. And then Mm. they had that other component as well, which was to sow distrust in people's traditional denominational associations, right? And they said, yeah, I'm not sure that you can trust your traditional denomination. I think there's some liberalism that is that is creeping in, and we are the name you can trust. And so all these people who knew who D.L. Moody was back in the day, and he was just this very famous person back back in the day. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody, most people, middle class people at least, white middle class uh, Americans thought he was a great person. And they said, well, we trust Moody, so we'll trust the Moody Bible Institute. So it's an interesting kind of where the influencer came in. Like he was an early influencer in this change. Absolutely. And, yeah. and so there's this, so creating distrust in how things have been in, and they used and kind of weaponized the word liberalism, like it's dangerous. Things mm-hmm. are changing. Yep. So come, come to us because we're going to keep things the same. Is that, is that, am I hearing that right? Or yeah, yeah, I think that's right. They, they were trying to brand themselves as the face of conservative Protestantism. But the and ir- that meant status quo. Yeah, that, that meant, meant status okay. quo. But the irony of it is they actually <laughs> yeah. weren't, right? They Exactly. Like, yeah, so yeah. The, people, the people that they were sowing distrust in were the real <laughs> traditional people, right? And so this this period of time is is a really interesting one in denominations because you you did have a, a growing kind of liberalism that yeah and where people are really grappling with real issues, you know, I mean, you know, Darwinian evolution comes out, you know, the nature of science, modern sociology is born, history is born, biblical criticism comes out, and all of these things are, you know, fundamentally challenging a lot of things that people thought they knew. And so... And systems of power, right? Systems of power. Absolutely. You need to wrestle with that and you need to say what, what, you know, what are you going to do with that? There were some people that in in what have now become these mainline denominations that said, hey, you know, we got to we got to embrace the new science and we need to, you know, some very judiciously, some maybe less judiciously. And we need to be honest and say that some of these liberal folks, you know, moved into eugenics and things like that. So there's a real dark side to that that we don't want to avoid. But most of these people are really well-intended people and just doing the best they can and trying to be honest and this honest grappling with their faith. There are other people in those mainline denominations that really, you know, just wanted to stick with the status quo. And, And they were the real ones that were doing that. These evangelicals said, no, you need to purity again, right? You need to separate yourself from those liberal forces. Otherwise, you know, you are somehow unpure. And so that was the kind of tactic that they took to kind of attack those conservatives. Yeah, it's just such an interesting thing that progress, right? And yep. growth and new information, which again, it's just it just it, it's a play on play on so much here. So I, I'm curious though, as we dig deeper into this, what kind 
of consequences has the blending, you know, of these cultures of, of business and evangelicalism has that had on the culture at large from your perspective? Yeah. And that's an, another really great question. And I think there are a couple things. I think just in general, modern business conceptualizes and thinks about people in in certain ways, right? And so I think it has kind of stunted the broader culture's imagination when it comes to thinking about who are we as people, how should we live, and how should we organize ourselves? So, you know, business thinks of people primarily either, you know, you are labor, uh, a worker, or you are a consumer, right? They, they don't think of you as being, I don't know, like a parent, or they don't think of you as being a community member or, you know, something beyond these kind of stark economic roles. So, yeah. So I think as these evangelicals who are now supposedly representing, you know, conservatism, right, as they start adopting those same views of, of humanity, and they start shaping their religion around those things as well, then these fairly new constructs that really only matured in the 1910s are suddenly seen to be like eternal and maybe even God-given or something like that when they're really, you know, a, a pretty recent innovation. So, but, so on the one hand, these evangelicals started thinking about their faith as, uh, like driven primarily as a personal choice, right? So you end up shopping for religion the same way that you would, I don't know, shop for shoes. And that's not at all traditional. I mean, people usually did not choose their faith. You were usually born into mm-hmm. your faith. And to be a faithful Christian meant to like live into it, right? And not, not, not to choose. And for evangelicals, the choice itself really became paramount. So I so I think that that whole dynamic has really had a impact on the culture at, at at large. But I think also then an outcome of that is that it's just really been corrosive to real community and I think mm-hmm. ultimately to democracy because people less and less are imagining themselves as these other entities as these other type of people. They see themselves primarily as consumers. They see their freedom. You know, what does it mean to be free? To be free means that I can consume as I want. I can buy what I want. And so if somebody is getting in the way of me, you know, consuming the way that I want, then they are against my freedom. But there's this whole range of other things, right? That other ways that you could define freedom. And we end up kind of forgetting about those things. Yeah, let me jump in though about this yeah. concept of consumerism connected to, so we kind of consume our religion, we kind of get trained that all of a sudden now it's like, like I'm shopping for what feels good. And if I, my style changes and I want to shop for something mm-hmm. different. So, so that on, on a more personal basis, then looking at the subjects of consumption and even consumerism, how would we, because I think this is, I really want listeners to really, think critically about this in their own lives and in the places they work, the businesses they run, the places they lead, how would we recognize the influence of consumer-oriented faith and faith-oriented consumerism Mm -hmm. in our own lives or the lives of our neighbors? Yeah. And I think both of those things are really important, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, for a consumer-oriented faith, I would say, really listen to how a faith leader talks about people first, hmm. you know, like how, you know, are are they, the way they talking about people, is it clear that that person sees them just as an audience, as a consumer, or do they see them uh. as something more than that? Right. So like, how are they, yeah. How are they thinking about people? I think that's a real kind of tell. I think the second thing, and maybe this is even more important is to look at how the religious organization is structured. I, you know, it can be kind of boring. People don't tend to, you know, think so about it. So boring. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. The, the church papers, I go to now. Yeah. Uh-huh. I know. The cor- yes, and corporation papers are so boring so, too. You're right. Sorry. But they're so, so important. Yes. <laughs> so important. So unsexy. But actually, like, if you don't do them, yeah. you company. Oh my gosh, I'm connecting the dots here because. 
the church where I go to now is part of a denomination that is like so bureaucratic. I'm like, my brain wants to explode. Yes. But the even though I, there's a lot of growth there, there's lots of levels of accountability and yep. layers of oversight. Yes. Again, it's still flawed. Yep. But you're right. Oh, exactly. my gosh. My yeah. escort papers for my businesses are crucial. <laughs> yes. If I don't have that, it's just flying by the seat of my pay that I'm and I'm exposed. Yes. So, yeah. so exactly right. In. Yeah. But then also, you know, I, I think so, which is another part of the story, right, is that these these evangelical organizations organized and structured themselves like a corporation. Right. So you have mm -hmm. one person at the top who is calling all the shots. And everybody below just has to follow along with them. And that's very different from how traditional religious organizations were structured, which were actually democratic for the most part, where like if you're a church member in most of these traditional denominations, you get to vote on what happens, right? Or if, if not you, then your pastor is part of a larger group that votes on things, but there is accountability. There's all the stuff that you were talking about, right? And these these consumer oriented ideally, ideally, ideally there's yes. accountability. No, there, yes, <laughs> thank you. So there's that, but <laughs> yeah, but at least structurally there is something there. And I think you know, yeah, yeah. maybe some of your listeners are familiar with there is a recent podcast on uh, Mars Hill and the kind of train yes. wreck that was a classic example of this kind of corporate structure gone awry where you have one person or you have a very small group that is kind of secretive and nobody really knows what's going on who's in control of the organization that's going to give you a hint there but can i just say also that like the other side is super important too like a faith oriented mm. consumerism where i think like there are so many well-meaning business leaders out there who maybe hold to a free market fundamentalism, right? Where it's this mm -hmm. belief in, you know, that markets will fix everything, right? And so for those people, you know, I say, so keep an eye out for them as well, right? So like, are they really looking at empirical evidence or do they just have this ideology that they are convinced is going to, you know, solve everybody's problems? Do they believe that anybody who works hard is going to necessarily succeed? Because I don't think oh. the evidence shows that, right? You know, no. maybe there are other yeah. things going on there as well. No, definitely not maybe. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. So with the consumer-oriented faith, really bringing it back to how do leaders talk about those that they're serving leading, preaching to? Are they an audience? Are they a statistic? Or am I really seen as a unique individual mm -hmm. with unique needs and and differences too? Is it okay yes. to have differences and not be a part of groupthink? Absolutely. Right? And then, you know, faith-oriented consumerism, you brought up one interesting thing about the free market, but for me, I'm, I've been really thinking about how I can be a steward of what I've been given. But that changed around how I look at spending my time and my money and my energy and even where I spend my money. So that's kind of how I saw that word too, mm. is that kind of my values that are obviously influenced by my faith about how I can be a good steward yeah. and also supporting businesses that share values that are looking at things holistically. Yes. And so that really feels like it's like a full circle of the consumer-oriented faith to this faith-oriented mm you know, where are my values driving yep. that? But where, where is there a dark side to faith-oriented consumerism from your perspective? There has to be. Yeah, I think so. And I, I mean, I think it's it's in the collapse of, of the two and mm. seeing it as just this transactional thing, right? And so I think that that can be deeply problematic. I think, yeah, I mean, like, what is your conception of God, maybe, is is a question too, right? Is God this divine vending machine that, you know, you you plunk stuff in and, you know, you know, you plunk your prayers in and then and then you get what you want? Is is that all it is? Or is there something deeper? Is there is there a mystery there? That is there something beyond our comprehension? Or just getting or the transactional relationship with God, exactly right? right? Like exactly like right. the whole prosperity gospel mm -hmm. piece we see with the manifesting in the larger spiritual communities. That's true. And so if you're not getting what you want, then you're not praying hard enough. Mm -hmm. So that brings in scarcity and shame yep. and Absolutely. Then people kind of keep coming back to try and fix that. Yep. 
So there's, but consumerism is still consumerism and how, if that's connected to my faith in a unhealthy way, which if you live in Western culture, I don't yeah. know how any of us don't have a struggle with that. Yeah. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with consuming, right? But it's like everything mm -hmm. in moderation. And I think if the entirety of our world, if the entirety of our reality is shaped by by these types of relationships, I think there's something wrong and, and we need to mm -hmm. expand our vision. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to purity, if you're good enough, then you mm -hmm. get what you wanted to, just thinking about that component of evangelicalism that you brought up. So I want to shift a little bit to the article in the Washington Post where you were quoted around the myths of evangelicalism. And you told them that evangelicalism has used modern marketing strategy to spread their message through celebrity spokespeople and elaborate Christian media empires like folks like Joel Osteen or, or Joyce Myers. And there's some other folks like Hillsong we could probably name mm -hmm. that, you know, are, are in the media a lot. How has this influenced the formation of what you, you've already referenced as what you call corporate evangelical? Yeah. And I should also say, I, I think it's rampant, right? You know, I mean, like Osteen yeah. and, and Joyce Meyer are these kind of huger, larger than life celebrity sort of people that, you know, I think a lot of people look askance, but it's also, you know, these kind of more, I don't know, respectable, for lack of a better word, people like Billy Graham was very much in this mode as well, or someone today like who's more buttoned up, Tim Keller in New York City. All of these people mm -hmm. are are using these these same techniques. And I think what what it ends up doing, like how it influenced these corporate evangelicals, I think first is it shaped corporate evangelicals' relationship to their faith, right? That again, and this is harkening back to what I was talking about before, just seeing their faith itself as a commodity. Like maybe it's this an experience, but it would be an experience like going to Disney World. It's not mm -hmm. like a way of life or a, a way of being. It's it's this is this commodity exchange. I think it also shapes people's relationship to their faith leader and also to each other, right? And so there's this relationship where your faith leader is the celebrity, right? And so you interact with them as you would a celebrity. And I'm not sure that's that's a real healthy way of faith formation necessarily, <laughs> right? But uh, also, but then also with each other, right? You you can have a certain type of relationship with someone where you know you like the same movies or something like that. But I think there's there's not quite the depth that you could reach if you were, you know, engaging on something a little bit deeper. Right. It gets me thinking too, like about proximity, mm -hmm. because our relationships to each other then can be around these dynamic leaders. I mean, I've seen it in politics too. We see it obviously in yes. celebrities yep. and all of that stuff, which it's fun to be a fan, but so any, anyone that I know that teaches branding or trains people in the areas of branding, they're like, you want people to evangelize about your service, mm -hmm. your product, your offering. So evangelize. Yes. And, and so just that, that language has seeped into getting the word out. And, and again, in a sense, we want people to whatever we're offering, whatever our companies mm -hmm. are, our businesses, or we want, want to be useful. And, and, but I do see that there's a shift to how do we, like move from shareholders to stakeholders. Yes. And and some of it may just be semantics and words that mm. to meet the times, mm -hmm. but in action, it's not really proving yeah. the fruits of it. But it really is more of this, not hot top down, it's more collaborative. Yep. A trauma-informed leadership culture mm. is circular, is collaborative, yes. is where there, everyone has different roles and there's different responsibilities and you know, levels of accountability, of responsibility, those types of things. But... I, I do think that's interesting where we're so conditioned. You want people to talk about you and that's just what we're taught. But I think we've lost touch with what you said of just the, the kind of the retail, even the retail, they'll say retail relationships. Mm -hmm. See, even it's, yes, it's everywhere. Absolutely <laughs> it's, everywhere. I was going to say retail politics, right? <laughs> but, but, you know, even the, the, the back end off of social media is just conversations. Like what a joy it was for me when I was thinking about this conversation mm. I want to have. And I remembered what you wrote. And I was like, oh my gosh, I want to call up my old high school buddy and see if he's up for this <laughs> and have, we have a relationship, you know, and it wasn't anything on, I mean, I think we're friends on social media, but I don't think we've really chatted much, yeah. but, um, 
And it's just, to me, we talk, what's, what is a real relationship? Yes. And I think when we've corporatized and evangelized and, and put a value on celebrity popularity, we've kind of lost touch with our sense of worthiness and our sense of safety. So then they get wrapped up into what do we own? Who do we know? Mm -hmm. Who are we seen with? Mm -hmm. And I don't, th I think we're all infected with it. Yeah. And it's, I, I also think we're at a reckoning. A lot of the leaders I talk to are done. Yeah, They're sick of it. Mm -hmm. They're, they're like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to hang out in some of these online spaces, but I want to do in real life or one-on-one -on -one Zoom stuff that we don't have to broadcast mm -hmm. for the world. Yeah. So I just, this has got me thinking a lot. So how does this construct of, you know, corporate evangelical have the potential to impact business owners and leaders at work from your experience? And what have you seen and what, what are some of the trends that you're continuing to see uh, move and shift? Yeah. So I think uh, maybe speaking into what you're talking about here, that there is this um, temptation to, you know, think of leadership purely in terms of, you know, charisma and uh, celebrity, right? And so then that leads leaders then to maybe steamroll uh, over their subordinates instead of actually listening to them, instead of actually being collaborative, instead of actually listening to critics, right? Because you're the leader. And so you always need to be right. And you know everything. Which is a power over expertise yeah. with certainty, right? Going yep. back to what you exactly said. Okay. Right. It's exactly right. Um, so am I going to get an A professor? Am I listening well? You are just <laughs> I'm sitting at the house. front of the room. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sorry, keep going. So yeah, bring yeah. it back to the impact yeah. of this construct. So yeah. I think that, I think also perhaps there is a temptation among some leaders to ignore inconvenient facts for matrimony, oh, right? Stop, you stop, know? stop, stop, pause on that. <laughs> pause on that. No, because yeah. I think this is, there's, there's, I think being a good leader and a good mm -hmm. business owner and a good steward is completely inconvenient. Yes, yes. It's completely inconvenient. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and I think that that message, because of all that we breathed in around this corporate evangelicalism that you're talking about, it it's really how to think that something's wrong with us if something's inconvenient and not efficient mm -hmm. and easy. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh my gosh. And then I mean, we can talk about the dangers of what we saw on January 6th of ignoring inconvenient mm -hmm. facts, like you lost. Yes. I don't know. It's a mm -hmm. big fact. But keep, can you <laughs> yes. tell tell me more? Sorry, I got a little excited there. No. So tell no. me more. What are some of the inconvenient facts that you've seen business owners and leaders start to dismiss or continue I mean, to dismiss? Like, honestly, the first example that comes to mind right now is this kind of obsession that we see with cryptocurrency and blockchain and all this kind of, you know, and like, Everybody is, you know, just talking about it. And this is the thing that is going to solve all of our problems, right? Yeah. I, I encourage people who think this to really seriously engage with economists who know money inside and out, right? They know how money functions and they know what it's supposed to do. And 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 so engage with critical economists um, who are or economists who are critical of of crypto and what are they saying about it and then evaluate those those critiques and and see if it holds water listen to software engineers there's a bunch of them on twitter you can follow them and they'll say you know this is a technology in search of a problem and there are way more efficient ways of doing the things that that it claims to do that there are all these problems and so but you just see this balloon right and and I'm looking at this as a historian, and I'm saying, is this the 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 same bubble that we saw in 2007, 2008? And is it going to just blow again? So, like, I, I think that's the classic example where it used to be, you know, subprime mortgages, and we can package them, and they're going to still be completely safe. Well, that proved not to be true. And so is this another thing where we have this kind of magical faith in a particular technology that is going to solve. And again, interestingly, it's meant to solve the problem of trust, right? That's what it's uh, uh. supposed to be doing. And I should say I'm no expert in this whatsoever. I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> a, I'm a frumpy historian. So, you know, I mean, you know, take it or leave it. But I do like you I don't just have to be frumpy and a historian. You don't. You just can be a historian. 
come on, Tim. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's, yeah, no, not all historians are frumpy. I'm married to one too. You're not yes. frumpy. My husband's not frumpy. All right. I spoke for that. So let's, when we think about inconvenient facts and just, again, that takes energy mm-hmm. and also it can, and, and inconvenience can be f- afraid of being misunderstood or losing trust, but you keep talking about trust. And I go back to um, Brene Brown's research and she talks about trust being built on small, regular Mm. connections and connection is being seen, heard, you know, valued and respected. And so that kind of is the antithesis of a lot of, you know, what you're identifying Mm -hmm. in corporate evangelicalism and, and some of these constructs that both corporate and certain faith communities have adopted where there's not connection. It's almost like a dopamine hit. Mm -hmm. We get a little fix, a little Mm -hmm. like, you know, a little take a break from our, the shame, the burdens of shame we're holding on to. But when we really feel seen and understood and we really trust like that, you can't put a dollar sign on that or value on that. That to me is sacred. Yep. But it's really hard work and there's no way to do it in a way that is efficient, right? It's no time. Lots of time and maybe not the funnest stuff to do, but super, super. It's not in the budget. No, it's not in the budget. Right. That's exactly right. (laughs) This is fascinating. So I want to shift a little bit back to, to you Mm. and you studied at the Moody Bible Institute and we're from the Midwest. If Mm -hmm. you're in the Midwest, you know that this is kind of an institution now, in our circle of friends back in the day, this is a group of friends that were not from my high school. So you guys are my little reprieve <laughs> from my own high school drama. Yeah. And I was I was kind of the heathen you hung around with. I was yeah. a liberal heathen. I was pushing all the envelopes from you all. So like, I know that Moody Bible is like, oh, Tim, you're going there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so, but it's interesting because this became the namesake of your research and writings, this place yeah. that you went to school for a period of time. What personal experiences inspired you to focus on Dwight Moody and and what stood out to you about his story? As you said, this was this was my background, right? You know, I was born into this stuff, you know, I came by it honestly and and I believed it all, right? And so I think for me, it was actually the the irony is when I was at Moody is when I started asking some questions, right? Because it was when mm-hmm. I was at Moody that I had a history professor who like really taught us history, right? And so as an evangelical, I just sincerely believed my whole life that what I believed as someone from the Midwest in 1990 or whatever it was, was identical, you know, in substance at least, identical to what Jesus taught and what the disciples believed back 2000 years ago, right? And so back, back to certainty. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that this 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 faith, this gospel had not changed one iota in any important, you know, regard for over 2000 years, right? So you study history and you start to see not only is that, you know, completely false, but that what we believe now is radically different from even 500 years ago or even 150 years ago. And so that was kind of mind shattering to me uh, in a lot of ways. And for me, it, you know, raised these questions. I'm like, why did I believe this? You know, why do I believe this? What was it that, that led me to believe it? And so that was, I think, the start of my research and, you know, just kind of trying to figure that out. And then it grew from there. So I think, you know, Moody specifically, he's, he is probably one of the first modern religious celebrities. And, you know, he was very profoundly shaped and transformed by being a celebrity, which is kind of an interesting story in and of itself. So I was kind of interested in that. Mm. So, I mean, he started off as this kind of working class guy. And then, you know, by the end of his life, like all these, you know, huge robber barons of the Gilded Age just loved him. And so he's this kind of darling of the of of the elite business class. So that was kind of interesting. But I think I was even more interested in how his image and his reputation was used after his death. 
to kind of hmm. create these common practices that that we see today. And that was not really done by Moody. It was done by this guy, Henry Parsons Kroll, who was the first really important president of the Moody Bible Institute. And he was also president of the Quaker Oats Corporation. And so oh, the crossover. It's the crossover, exactly. And so and he was one of the innovators in modern advertising, right? He's the guy right. who said, hey, let's take this picture of this Quaker, let's slap it on a on a you know on a package and let's say guaranteed pure, which is what every single box said, and seal it up and charge twice as much for it and get people to doubt the oats that they used to buy out of the huge barrels. And that was his, that was his business. Oh my gosh. So that was our childhood. Yep. But you're right. I remember thinking the stuff in the barrel mm-hmm. was like less than, yes. than the pretty stuff. And like, I mean, I'm just connecting it with the Quaker and mm-hmm. the guaranteed pure on, on oats. Yep. There's another aspect of the story, right, which kind of revolves around middle class respectability and the importance of that. And so there was actually the the one incident that really got me curious and got the entire thing started was so I, I took a year off. I was planning to go elsewhere after I went to Moody for two years and then realized nothing transferred. And so I wow. went back to finish up. So when I came back to Moody, so it's this fundamentalist institution, I had started to change. And there was a new intake form that I had to fill out before I could be readmitted. And so as a fundamentalist institution, you might expect it asked, had I ever smoked? Had I ever drank alcohol during my time that I was away? So that's probably expected. Had I ever done drugs or had sex? But then along with all those things, it said, have you ever spoken in tongues? Oh, interesting. Which is really, really strange. And I'm like, why would they group this this spiritual experience of speaking in tongues, which is very common among Pentecostal evangelicals, right? people who have almost no difference in their faith tradition than you would find at Moody. They believe almost all the same things. But if I had spoken in tongues... That would have been a huge red flag, just like me doing drugs, apparently. So anyway, so that got me really curious as to why is that? Why was that such a red flag for them? And it turns out that the beginnings of Pentecostalism were all occurring during the same time that the Moody Bible Institute was being formed. There was this huge controversy uh, and scandal over faith healing that occurred around the turn of the the 20th century that threatened their reputation, right? And Mm -hmm. the bottom line is the institution sees their students as their product. And it was an impure product if you would leave the Moody Bible Institute and be, be speaking in tongues. So Ooh, that's where the guaranteed, so pure that's where the guaranteed title comes, comes from. Exactly right. So book. it's just all of that stuff. So, and I'm also just even even those questions about you know smoking and drugs and mm-hmm, sex and mm-hmm. alcohol. It's just the purity police and the morality Absolutely. police. And I mean, as a veteran psychotherapist, the damage yes. that has done. Yeah. So then, how have your studies? led to a sort of maybe deconstruction or some other evolution mm-hmm. of your faith. I mean, I know, I know where you're at when we were hanging out mm-hmm. in high school. Yeah. But I'm sensing from this conversation, there's shifts. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, talk about how those studies have impacted your own faith journey and where you're at today. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, most certainly has. Yeah, I, I would no longer identify as as evangelical. I do see myself as some form of Christian. I think I belief is hard. You know, I think we should acknowledge that. Yeah, but I, yeah, I, I, I do feel like I maybe can't even escape being a Christian. You know, that there is there is something something in me that's there. But but that faith, I think, is really different. I think it's much more centered and very much as a result of my my research and my study that for me faith community is everything right mm-hmm. and versus like you know very specifics of what i believe and you know all sorts of doctrinal minutia and and all of that sort of stuff doesn't matter to me as much as being a part of a believing community that is like really like 
interactive, that is democratic, that is that really loves each other and and tries to you know think the best of each other and is really trying to make each other better versus a mm. kind of hierarchical whatever. So there's that. I think uncertainty is central to my faith that Beautiful. you just like that because that is reality, right? You know, yes, they're like <laughs> a, a reality based existence means that almost everything is gray. There is very, very little that we are certain about. And so let's just embrace this because what that's going to do is it's going to make me humble, right? And it's going to make me open to hearing what other people have to say and not steamroll over people. So growing up, I think so much, like for me, what was so important was my intentions much more than my outcome. And I've I've been trying to do some work in terms of understanding race and trying to become more anti-racist in my in my orientation. And, and one of the key things I think I've learned from some of that work is that intentions don't matter, right? You know, that we can do some of the most horrendous things with the best intentions. And so mm-hmm. let's focus less on on what we, you know, and specifically justifying myself and what I'm doing based on my intentions and say, no, let's take a step back and let's just look at the outcomes. What is it doing? Am I hurting people or am I bringing out the best in people? You know, am I causing harm or am I being a sponge of, you know, harm and not reflecting back on people, the harm that they might be directing towards me? Yeah, that kind of odd faith. But, and so I I, I guess for me, it's following Jesus. And I do see that as, as integral to like, I think the teachings of Jesus are pretty great and I try to follow it. And yeah, there's a lot I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, that's so the opposite of how we were taught in our faith. And, and if you ever doubted, it was really considered a flaw or questioned When really, you know, scripture even talks about the importance of questioning authority. Yep. So I'm curious, Tim, is this what you thought you'd be doing today? Oh, no, no. <laughs> Not at all. You mean like in terms of like my life in general? Oh, yeah, no. So, yes, you go to graduate school and it it is a little bit of a cult itself, right? And so, you, you know, you, <laughs> are, yeah, you, you are programmed Fair. in a certain way and you have these definite, you know, definitions of what success is, right? And it's, you know, you get a tenure track job at a research university and, you know, and you publish your books and, you know, you go along your way and then you move up the ladder and all of this kind of stuff. And, that, you know, it's not what I'm doing. And I, like, my my spouse and I look back on that and realize I think now like how miserable I think I would have been in in that context. Oh. I, I just I I'm not sure I was cut out for it, and I don't know. I, I mean, so our circumstances were such that we ended up moving to Grand Rapids, and there were so there are some geographical constraints, and then I had this great privilege of being the lead parent with my two daughters for a bunch of years while I was working on the book. And it was lovely. It's lovely. And then now they're old and they don't need me anymore. So I was thinking, I need to do something. So I so I took this job at a public library and I really love it. It's great. You know, I would I would definitely maybe push back and say not that you weren't cut out for the whole stereotypical you know, traditional academia track, but that it just would have been soul killing yeah, for you. No, that's yeah. what you, what you're okay. I, yeah, that's so what I mean. Sure yeah. Because mm-hmm. so many people that I know in that space have just lost their soul yeah. to be in this model. And, and then some are thriving yeah. and they're able to, and, and it, and, but it's not the norm it's hard. from a lot of those that I've done. It, it is hard. It's its own and kind it's, of hard. It's changing. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. It is. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. So fast. Okay. So I've got some fun, quick fire yeah. questions for okay. you as you wrap up. Okay. Tim, what are you reading right now? Okay, I am reading a book that is called, it's it's under my computer right now, it's called The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber. The Dawn of, oh, yeah, that sounds it's, good. It's, it's this kind of 
big history of humanity. It's like 300,000 years, and it's a very thick book. And it's so some light, easy peasy week, it's, it's weekend. It's really reading. interesting. Yeah. So you should read <laughs> I, it. Love it. I love it. <laughs> Uh, I, I bet you my husband knows about it. Yeah. Okay. So what song are you playing on repeat right now? Okay. So I have teenage daughters and like, they've really impacted my, my musical yes. taste. So probably, you know, for better or worse, but I've been listening nonstop to uh, Halsey's Graveyard. I just, I, I, nice. I cannot get enough of it. Yeah. Okay. Tim, mm-hmm. I can't tell you how much my heart is happy to hear you <laughs> talk about Halsey right now. Just there's just <laughs> listeners, you don't understand how th- what this means. Yeah. Okay, so best best movie you've seen recently? Okay, I am not much of a movie person for some reason. I've shifted <gasps> away, but we are we are I believe we are living in the golden age of television. So I'm going to yes. shift it, and uh, okay. I think so. If if you haven't started watching Station Eleven. Um, on HBO, you you need to start watching that because it's absolutely all right. Fantastic. Adding it to my list. Yep, please do. Yeah. Favorite favorite eighties music movie or music or anything pop culture. Favorite eighties oh. anything. Well, I will do movies because um, yeah, but I'm gonna mess it up again and say there there's got to be three. There's Wings of De- Desire by Vim Vendors, the the German director. There's which is oh my gosh, fantastic. I've about that movie forever. Yes, it's so good. It 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 holds up too. And then and then you gotta you gotta throw in planes, trains, and automobiles, right? Oh my gosh, we just watched that. <laughs> We were watching old eighties movies. Yeah, that's epic. Okay, yep. classic. Okay. What is your mantra right now? What is what do you kind of what's your self-talk? What yeah. do you say to kind of keep you um, focused on track? My my mantra is excellence takes time. Oof. So that's that's where I am right now. Patience is good. It's something I'm working on this year. Yeah. So what's an unpopular opinion that you hold? It's a nerdy one, but it's like to understand how religion works. You need to define religion not as having to do with God or holy books or sacredness or anything, but religion is any system that organizes you. Oh, okay. So, That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. I love this. And, and, and lastly, who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? Oh, man. You know... There are, there are actually several people in my life, and I'm not going to name them because it would probably embarrass them, but they are quiet, brilliant people who are always trying to bring out the best in everybody around them. And I am like, I people I feel just like truly honored to know and interact with. So hold oh. it there. May we all have more of those folks in our life and may we be those people Indeed. to others around us. Oh, Tim, this was a treasure. Thank you for your time and sharing so much of your incredible knowledge with us and connecting the dots with what's going on today. And so thank you so much for your time. It's been an honor to connect with you. And I know the listeners are going to get so much of out of what you shared today. So thank you so much. Great. You're so welcome. And thanks for having me on. It was really fun. It's an understatement to say we've been through a lot, and we're still going through so much. And feeling known and valued feels like a lost art in many spaces that are now so divided and disconnected. So when you do feel known and valued, it can feel like medicine and build so much needed connection. When charismatic leaders and business owners exploit collective pains to further drive their personal agenda, more harm can be done. Instead of offering a community that heals and supports all, these types of leaders can offer a false sense of belonging that further divides and takes a toll on our individual and collective well-being. Tim brought a clarity to us around what's behind these charismatic leaders we keep witnessing and why they exploit and do harm through the connection of modern evangelicalism, capitalism, and consumerism. Now, building trust can come in many forms. I'm I'm curious for you, do you cultivate a culture that requires you to fit in or truly value difference and welcome it? What systems are you in that support healing and hard conversations? And which ones push back on questioning authority and how things are done? And what do you need to unlearn about building a successful community and business in light of what you learned today about the intersection of evangelicalism, capitalism, and consumerism? 
When we go through experiences like we have, it is essential to come together and acknowledge what has happened and talk about how we feel. It can be powerful when leaders understand our challenges, are complex, and support our interconnectedness instead of exploiting collective pain for personal gain. This is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up old echoes of doubts and insecurities during times when you feel the need to be rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call with me. I cannot wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can sign up for The Unburdened Leader Weekly and find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. <laughs>